You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome everyone to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive beatniks and creative renegades who are trying to figure out how to live big and stay healthy in the process. I'm Leah Burkhart, and today, in keeping with the broader theme of reframing adversity, I want to talk about the concept of post-traumatic growth, not to be confused with post-traumatic stress. So first, I think I will start with the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what most people are pretty familiar with. And the idea behind that is after experiencing something traumatic, we can feel echoes or experience echoes of that experience in our lives. Wow, I just used the word experience a lot. As an example, people who have endured... um, violent imagery experiences. So survivors of gun shootings, soldiers coming back from war, uh, people who have survived, you know, near-death experiences. That would be an example. So we, there's the initial experience that we go through, the gun shooting, the car accident, the sexual assault, whatever might have occurred in our life. And then there's this echo where months later, even years later, our bodies will unprovoked and unprompted behave as though that same thing we endured is happening in the present moment. So that is what many people will be go- will go to therapy for. It's what many people think of when they imagine what comes after trauma and it's real it's very very difficult it's also not the only ending it's not the only experience that people have after having endured trauma there is this other option called post-traumatic growth so that is well it's defined as a positive change experienced as a result of the struggle with a major life crisis or traumatic event although we coined the term post-traumatic growth the idea that human beings can be changed by their encounters with life challenges sometimes in radically positive ways is not new the theme is present in ancient spiritual and religious traditions literature and philosophy what is reasonably new is the systemic study of this phenomenon by psychologists, social workers, counselors, and scholars in other traditions of clinical practice and scientific investigation. So that's coming from, I don't know, a cursory Google search. You'll see these things pop up in multiple websites and web pages, and that's probably the most common. So there's this two-part element to what, you know, the definition. The first being, here's what it is. It's something happens, and it's traumatic, and we grow from it. And it's been discussed for thousands of years, but we're only now really looking at it in a clinical way. And in speaking of, you know, in terms of how long this 
goes, you know, how far this goes back. We, you might recall the that which does not kill us makes us stronger. That was written by Friedrich Nietzsche. So the first question I had when I thought about this concept, post-traumatic growth, was are these folks outliers? Are they special? <laughs> um, because if I don't want to do a podcast and then say, yeah, if you want to be one of the 1%, there's nothing wrong with shooting to be one of the 1%, but that just can feel a little bit demoralizing. But it turns out 50 to 70% of those who experience adversity report feeling stronger on the other side of that. That's pretty remarkable. So how do we do that? What does that even really mean? The first thing that came to my mind, and you'll have to remember, I've I've spoken on this podcast a number of times about different examples that have occurred in my life and different challenges I've gone through, especially as a highly sensitive person who, or, you know, am an introvert, highly sensitive person, I, lots of things make me uncomfortable. And so it's easier for memories that have imprinted on me to feel like a kind of trauma. And yet, many of those difficult things that I went through helped shape me into the kind of person that could build greater and greater capacity to withstand the next challenge. So one of the things that helped me most with things like anxiety, insomnia, depression, uh, was getting in touch with a, a man who worked with the philosophy of yoga. And again, the philosophy. So there's eight arms of yoga. Uh, one of them, of course, is the you know, downward facing dog situation. Um, but another is more of the philosophy. And in the more the philosophic realm, they use this word called tapas. And the, the word is not a small plate in a Spanish restaurant, just to be clear. <laughs> it's a word in Sanskrit. And the meaning is the, the burning off of impurities. So more simply, tapas could be heat. It's specifically the kind of heat generated by certain yogic practices or a certain approach to yogic practice or a certain approach to life. So it can be used as a mm, metaphor, I guess, analogy. You can think of this concept of tapas, this, this friction. It's friction that's creating heat in our lives. And it burns off that which is unnecessary and adversity can be seen as a kind of tapas. Anytime we, especially if we intentionally move through difficult things, our willingness to engage with purpose and intention can burn away our assumptions about how the world should be and how we are. And I think this is really important for highly sensitive people. I find a lot of highly sensitive people not all, but a number of them try and hide behind the label. And it's not serving any of us. And what I mean by hiding, I'm not talking about the person who says, you know what, I've had it. I'm going to go off. I've got a little bit of money. I'm going to buy a little bit of land. I'm going to build my little cottage and just like Walt Whitman. And I'm cool with it. I am happy as a lamb. Thank you very much. And, and you know, toodles. Because that's not, I mean, it could be a kind of hiding, but it's the relationship that the person in question has with that, that sort of 
I'm going to make this happen. I have a sense of independence and I'm not, I don't resent the world. I just want to carve my little space in it. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about hiding. I'm talking about the person who stays in, in, in situations that they don't need to be in because they're insisting, oh, but I'm a highly sensitive person and therefore I can't. I can't get out of this job. I'm a highly sensitive person and I'm, that means that I'm conscientious and that means I just can't handle change, so I'm not going to. I can't get out of this relationship. I'm a highly sensitive person and I'm just not strong enough, so I will have to endure. I'm a highly sensitive person, so I can't start my own business. That would be too hard and it may overwhelm me. I can't go out and become an artist or write poetry or have a podcast or insert whatever thing that you hear the yearning. So the guy who's saying, I'm going off into the woods, doodles, is not saying, oh, I would have loved to have been a lawyer, but I can't. So I'm going to go off into the woods instead. He's saying, I want to go off into the woods, and so I'm going to go do it. I'm talking about the one who says, oh, I would love to go off into the woods and create a cabin on my own, but I don't know how to do that, and that's too hard, and I'm a highly sensitive person. So shrug. We can get stuck in our labels and tapas, that difficult experience, you know, when, and this is now me telling a story, of course, but in my personal experience, there's that word again, uh, I, life has a way of teaching us exactly what we need to learn. And if we decide we don't want to learn it, life has a tendency to insist. So if we haven't figured out how to be assertive and communicate effectively, Life keeps throwing people at us that force us to learn to be more assertive. If we haven't figured out how to say no and set boundaries, life keeps pushing us into these situations where suddenly boundaries become a necessity. And I think that's a neat thing about life. And I don't know if that's the outside world trying to teach us or if really that's something with, from within us that knows we need to learn to do this thing, but we're resisting and there's this tug of war going on internally. I don't know. But tapas from yoga is this idea of burning off those false assumptions, burning off impurities. Another way you can think about this, if you don't want to go into the woo-woo arena, is physical fitness. It's this concept that when you work your body out, uh, you get stronger. But what a lot of people don't know, many people do, but a number of those that I talk to don't actually know that when you work your muscles and you get sore, the soreness you're feeling is because you've broken your muscles down. I mean this literally. This is why it hurts. You've broken yourself a little. And then your body, in an effort to repair, creates some inflammation surrounds the area with fluid and then goes about the business of repairing it and then after having repaired it that additional material that's used to repair it is additional muscle mass and an additional capacity to lift emotions and intellect our whole being can operate in the same way the things that break us if we do it right can indeed make us stronger. But just like with physical fitness, 
you don't want to go full throttle. A lot of times, especially in our culture, we have this tendency to say, oh, well, you know, get out of your comfort zone and oh, you name it. You know, if you're not busy growing, you're busy dying. And that you, you know, they want to push hard and push fast. We like instant gratification in our culture. And that's fine, I guess, but it's not, what's the word I'm looking for? Sustainable. Think about it this way. Have you ever set a New Year's resolution on December 31st that you're going to get fit and then come January 1st, you being conscientious and wanting to adhere to your resolution, go to the gym and spend three hours there and you feel like a, you know, real righteous badass and (laughs) the next day you wake up and you're, well, useless. (laughs) Everything hurts and you think, why? See, this is why I never exercise. This is ridiculous. Or maybe that's not what you do. Maybe you think, oh, I'm just going to keep going right after I get better. And so your muscles do in fact repair, but by the time you repair, it's three or four days later, and you're thinking, you know what, never mind. That's not appropriate. That's not the amount that's going to lead to long-term effective fitness. Going about our world and trying to develop post-traumatic growth is, it, it behaves similarly. We need to do it in gradual steps. And sometimes we're thrown into a traumatic event that doesn't really allow us to do things gradually. But this episode is really, I'm trying to help people get the same benefits of post-traumatic growth without having to throw themselves into trauma. So it's for those, this is really for those who either A, have endured trauma and want to know what tools are out there and what's what kind of conversations are happening around this this post-traumatic growth business it's also for those who are thinking you know i don't know that i've experienced trauma i mean i i didn't endure war i i I did not personally bear witness to a gunfight or a, a mass shooting but i am scared all the time i feel paralyzed in my life right now i'm in a really tough spot And I don't know how to move and I don't know how to get out and none of the tools I've been using seem to help me. And I feel helpless. I don't know where to go from here. What I want to do is provide tools for those folks too so that you can use the same principles without having to go through a truly horrific event. So first, (laughs) I want to give some examples from my own life. And you'll see what I mean when I talk about these when I say, you know, these are not mass traumatic events. These were my particular brand of hard. Uh, When I was a little girl, my parents, my mom and dad, were very loving, especially loving to me. So there was never any question about how much they loved me. They were also impulsive, fierce, they were whatever the opposite of conflict avoidant is. They lo- I don't know if they loved battle, but they were good at it. I do have a more vigilant nervous system. I do not like conflict. And I remember when my mom and my dad would be screaming at each other. And maybe they weren't. Maybe they were just speaking very loudly. But it felt like screaming to my four and five and six-year-old being. And I remember crawling into a corner and trying and just crying and screaming and desperate to break the fight up. And it worked. 
it was I was the one common denominator that would cause them pause and have them think perhaps we should stop but that imprinted something on me what it imprinted is anger is always bad don't ever get angry because anger is destructive they didn't mean to imprint that on me but there you have it I also remember being in the car with them I was in the back seat and they got into a an argument and it was a really painful one I won't get into the details of the content of what they were arguing about but suffice it to say that it led to an accident and it was terrifying there was a lot of fear there was a lot of anger there was a, a bit of emotional violence and that often comes out when fear and anger are involved and I had to go home with an with my dad and a, a tow truck driver and my mom had to come back separately and it was confusing and so I learned quickly that oh the world is a scary place and you never know what's going to happen I didn't anticipate I was going to get into a car accident I have a memory of my mom who, my mom is like a little butterfly. She's in love with being in love. And so she fell in love easily. She also fell out of love easily. <laughs> um, and one of her boyfriends was a veteran. And he did have post-traumatic stress. And I don't know what other things it may have ailed him. But he was in the midst of a temper. He had a temper so did my mother and the two got into an argument and all I heard was the banging you know, I I overheard the arguing happening and I just remember curling up into my closet in my bedroom in the lowest of the downstairs and just wanting it to stop and it did eventually stop but when I crawled out from my hiding space and went upstairs to my mom's bedroom there was the shape of her body in a door so she, he had thrown her damn near through a door. And that was traumatic for my then maybe nine or ten-year-old self. And I had seen him be incredibly kind. I had seen them be extraordinarily affectionate with each other. So very early I'm starting to realize, wow, the same people that we love, it's possible they can't be trusted. I don't know. Or maybe they can, and I'm all, so I'm already having to reconcile the paradoxes of a human being. And as I grew into, you know, junior high and high school, my mom ultimately fell in love with a man who was gentle and loving and did not throw anybody through doors. And that was a really sort of golden era time for me. And then I went to college. And in college, for some reason, I developed insomnia and anxiety and I was basically a nervous little bean I, I still was very effective in my classes I was a high achieving student but I couldn't shake this weird these panic attacks that kept coming online I think because that was my undergraduate college degree or career and I was graduating with a degree in politics and economics I'm pretty sure it was those panic attacks and those bouts of insomnia that would last weeks on end that led me to holistic health education. That's why I ended up getting a degree or a master's degree in it. I was originally going to go into health policy, hence the politics and economics bit. But after having been through something that was personally so difficult, I thought there's got to be a way to work with this system of mine that doesn't 
necessitate taking drugs or doesn't require that I be miserable for my whole life to battle because it did feel like a battle. And you notice, by the way, all these things I'm describing, these are not mass shootings. These are not uh, mass scale traumas, but they are experiences that do imprint a life lesson on the system. And then, so that became a journey. You know, I graduated from uh, what got out of graduate school and lived in San Francisco, which was exhilarating and did nothing good for my sleep disorder. (laughs) Um, Got out of, I was in a relationship at that time and got out of that one. And it was a very lovely relationship and ended for good reasons. But okay, so now I'm back and I'm being single. and And I probably moved, by the way, from birth to now, at least once a year, every year. So there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of flux. There's a lot of uncertainty. And then I got myself engaged to a man that was not a good fit. He was not a bad man. And I was not a bad woman, but we just weren't good together. But it's odd how humans operate. Initially, I thought the problems were due to space. He and I lived together with a roommate of his, and she had her boyfriend over frequently. And, you know, there was a cat, a dog, a parrot, a snake. I mean, we're all in a two-bedroom condo. It was a little, for introverted people, it's not ideal. <laughs> so I had this great, I say with a tremendous amount of sarcasm, great idea My mom still had the house that her husband, the kind man who I lived with in high school, uh, he had given that to her to be able to use as a rental property. He unfortunately died of lung cancer. That may have also been part of my anxiety and depression in college. But at any rate, uh, I asked if maybe we could rent that house. And so we did. And my then boyfriend who ultimately become fiance said well in fact I'll sell my condo and I'll take some of the resources and that we get out of the condo and put it into the house so we can make it our own which was a risk he was taking and I assumed that would solve all our problems and it turns out if you can't figure out how to be happy together in a cramped two-bedroom condo with two other humans just adding more space won't fix everything I don't know why I thought that, why I thought that was such a, it's like, whoa, that's so mysterious. I couldn't have known. Yeah, I could have, but that is life. So there we were desperately trying to figure out how to make a relationship that wasn't meant to be work because damn it, we loved each other and that should be enough. But it wasn't, it just wasn't. But by the time we got to the place where it became so very clear that it wasn't going to work, we had we were engaged and the house that we were living in that he had put financial resources in was still technically owned by my mom and i didn't have those financial resources to give to him and just say oh thanks so much but you know here's your money back and now you can be on your way i now needed to reckon with my mom who is a as i said ferociously loving mother and a ferocious creature on her own in her own right she's you know, I don't want to say tribal in the derogatory way, but she'll give the shirt off her back for her people. But if you are not part of her people and you cause harm to her people, you know, <laughs> run. <laughs> She's a ferocious creature in that sense. But I needed to pay him back for the, at the very least for the financial amount that he had invested into the property. And so the only way I could figure out how to manage that was to 
buy the house from my mom, take some of the equity out, give that to him. It was a mess. And you're talking to someone who, again, is a highly sensitive person. And I also do not like to be disliked. And I thoroughly loathe conflict. I will do whatever I can to avoid it if there is another answer because it's extremely uncomfortable. And remember, I told you as a child, I learned early, anger is not productive. Anger doesn't help anyone. Anger is destructive. I knew intellectually that probably wasn't true. I had learned intellectually through graduate school that anger is an important emotion, as important as sadness and happiness and apathy or... I knew that that was true, but I hadn't experienced constructive anger on my own skin. I hadn't ever really been in a position where I'd have to enforce boundaries to people I love and who I desperately want to make happy. That experience forced me into the worst of corners. Those are the examples. And, and, you know, ultimately I did get out of that relationship and I'm I can't be positive, but I'm pretty sure that however said fiancé may feel about me, and I'm sure he won't have very many nice things to say, he's probably grateful to no longer be in that set of circumstances. However angry he might have might be now that he got there in the first place. And here's what I can say about all of these things that up until this point I'm talking to you framing each of these experiences being bad. By being able to watch my parents argue in truly destructive ways, and at the same time, watching them both disarm in an effort to help me when I cried loud enough. At a really young age, I didn't just learn that anger can be destructive. That was perhaps the negative takeaway that I had to unlearn. But I also learned that people are complex. Two human beings, a human being, can be vicious and cruel and also life-giving and kind and compassionate. And I kept learning that lesson. I learned that lesson as I moved with my mom following that oh-so-very-classic up-down-over-and-out style of living where one minute we'd be living high and one minute we'd be living low in a lovely home and or living in a bedroom that was housed within a a house with a stranger I don't know all of those things and so I got to learn that gentlemen or or noble people come from everywhere and sociopaths come from everywhere (laughs) you meet villains and heroes in really unexpected places you meet villains and heroes sometimes in the same room with the same person on the same day That was a really helpful lesson to learn because as I grew to adulthood, it's been much easier for me to just let people be who they are. I don't think I could have been able to do that had I not been exposed to such a wide variety of people. That car accident, that really terrified me. It also showed me that, you know, there was a tow truck driver who was gentle and and kind when I was in the car with, you know, my dad as well and it showed me that life can be extremely unexpected and to cherish it because it can be over in a blink. I was so young and already I was figuring some of this stuff out, not because I'm especially smart, but because that was life trying to teach me something. Or at least it was something inside of myself desperately trying to learn it. 
the man who pushed my mom through the door, I got to see what it looks like for a person, and, and a woman no less, to go to town. Because the reason that argument began was because he had snapped at me. He didn't hurt me physically, but he, I had, she wasn't feeling well, and I had said to him, hey, my mom wants you. Because she was closer to me physically in proximity. So she cried for me first. And she was hovered, you know, crunched on a ball. She said, I need you to get him. I won't say his name, but at any rate. So I call down. I, I go down to where he is and explain, Mom needs you. She says, I'll be there in a minute. And I said, no, Mom needs you now. I, I said in a minute, he yells. But again, there's no sense for me that he's going to hurt me. But that wasn't, that didn't matter. Mama, what didn't you, you don't yell at my child. And so that whole battle that ensued, the spark was me, was I was in the center of it all. I, he had said something mean to me, so she was going to defend me. So I learned, oh, even when you're cornered and sick, you can fight. There's some fight in you. I can be that way too. And again, it wasn't something that I learned consciously, but in the back burner there, it's women aren't weak. Women can be tough broads. My mother was, is a tough broad. And in terms of going through that anxiety and insomnia in college, it was that anxiety and insomnia and depression that pushed me toward holistic health education which opened up so many doors. It was because of having gone through my graduate program that I got exposure to this trait, highly sensitive people, this HSB trait, and learned more about myself and sensations and how to navigate adversity. I wasn't putting it all into practice right away. It took years. It took well over a decade, even from the moment I was first exposed to all of the content. Like, you can know stuff intellectually about meditation and... Uh, nutrition and you know emotional regulation and you can learn about all that stuff and still it will take a long time for it to for to you know you have to practice it I'm grateful therefore that all of that came to be because that's also what led me to Marcel's door the gentleman who works in yoga therapy I, I would never have gone to a yoga therapist what the fuck is that anyway are you kidding me who has the resources and the time to and so on and so forth but that's where I was and that relationship has transformed my life in miraculous ways just being able to connect with a human being who can help me to reframe circumstances and challenges in new ways and of course that very difficult relationship by the time I got to the other side of it I no longer had any panic attacks I sleep pretty consistently now because I moved out of that hectic situation I moved into a more low-key area I got out of the Bay Area which is just crazy making and when things that are hard come up it's always it's almost like well on a scale of one to that noise on that you know on a scale of one to bad relationship stuck in a house that is owned by my mother and that I have to now play tug of war with two bulls, how bad is this? And so far, there hasn't been much that's so terribly bad. So those are all examples. Uh, I will also say that having gone through that difficult relationship really helped me hone what kind of relationship I want. And even more than that, be really comfortable not having one. 
for well over a year, like a couple of years. It was like, no thanks, I'm good. I don't really want one. I even remember having moved to Salem when I first got here, there was a young man who, he was being flirtatious and he kind of was opening up the possibility of a date and, and he said, oh, do you have a boyfriend? And, and I said, no. Are, are you married? And I said, no. He said, a boyfriend? With the eyebrow cocked up. And I said, no. And he looked at me for a second. He says, and you don't want one either, do you? And I said, nope, with a big smile. And I meant it, not in a, ew, boys are gross, or, oh, I just can't. It was a, I'm tired. I don't want to. But thanks. Thanks for stroking my ego. That was pretty great. <laughs> and after enough time of that, I did get to a place where I thought it would be nice to connect with someone. But I got real good in terms of a filter. But I would, you know, nope, I won't tolerate this. I won't tolerate that. I won't tolerate this. And that felt really good to be able to say no quickly, effectively. And that's what led me to getting in the relationship I'm in now, which of course is not to say, and now we all live happily ever after. We can ride off into the sunset. There's no work or effort involved. All is well. But rather it's, oh, this feels great because this feels like two people who are making conscious thoughts about what relationship we want to have. This feels like discernment. This feels like ease. It's easy to be with this person. Oh, how lovely. How great to sit in a space with someone and feel as peaceful as one would if they were alone and as delighted as one could be through things like infatuation. And he, in his own right, has gone through crazy ups and downs, especially as it relates to his career. You know, having gone through, you know, he works as a, you know, in a, I guess a managerial role, but in a blue collar industry where he's endured or seen really horrific examples of ineffective leadership. And he's worked his way up the ladder more or less by cleaning up other people's messes. And he's currently, he had the courage in this most recent experience or place that he was at working in to say goodbye even before he had another job lined up because he said, you know, I think I feel confident enough in my own skills that I can start my own business. And if another position comes up that is a really great fit, I'm open to that as well. That takes courage. And that courage was honed by adversity, by that sense of I have the resources, mental, financial, physical, to handle whatever life dishes at me. And I can not only take all of what I'm dealing with right now, but I can take it and make it something new. I can create something fabulous from this. Talk about waging, you know, climbing up, uh, using adversity as fuel, rather. It's, it's pretty remarkable. So with all of that having been said, the question then becomes, well, okay, great. How do I facilitate this so-called post-traumatic growth? Because for highly sensitive people, I, you know, I, I use the acronym, you know, in terms of a, a set of principles or practices to keep in place and to keep an eye on, I use the acronym STRONGER. So S is for a spiritual practice, or you might call it your something larger. T is for time to recharge, R is relationships, O is an outlet for creativity, N is nourishment, and G is growth, and then E is exercise, R is rest. That G, that growth, is something that I call an exercise. 
it has to be a part of the picture. I, I, there's nothing wrong with saying to highly sensitive people, hey, you're okay, you're not crazy, you can rest now. Absolutely. And once you have rested, get up. I will walk with you. You can handle this. Highly sensitive people are much tougher than they often realize because, well, it's kind of a, I don't know if I want to say double-edged sword, but on the one hand, highly sensitive people tend to be more affected by trauma. I think I'm really good evidence of that. The experiences I just went through for many kids might not even have really gotten on their radar, or if it did, it wouldn't have affected them perhaps in quite the same pronounced way. I don't know that all kids would have gone through what I did and ended up with anxiety and insomnia and depression. They may have remembered it and thought, well, that was really unpleasant, but it wasn't, you know, it was whatever it was. But I was an HSP, and so all of those things imprinted in a much stronger and more intense fashion. Because, again, when you have a more vigilant nervous system, everything you feel feels more intensely. And so it's more likely to imprint more deeply. And that's part of why I'm saying you know, the things I just went through were not objectively the most difficult things people can endure, but they were my special version of hard, my particular kind of difficult. And when you're trying to facilitate growth, I'm hoping to help people do this in a way that doesn't force them to go through unnecessary suffering just so they can get that so-called post-traumatic growth. Rather, I want to figure out, well, how can we hack the system? What are tools we might be able to use so that I can increase my capacity even before trauma becomes a part of the equation and therefore, you know, expand on my ability to navigate challenges preemptively and beyond that? If one has endured trauma, how do we, what are the tools available to us to optimize the chance that we will in fact become a post-traumatic growth story instead of a post-traumatic stress disorder story? And this goes back to, and I've mentioned this a number of times, so Andy Mort, who has a podcast called The Gentle Rebel, highly recommend him. Please, please go to his podcast. He's fabulous. Uh, He spoke about a woman named Beth Blulow who discussed the capacity zone. So really where she was coming from is we need to move away from this idea of getting out of our comfort zone and move towards something more like expanding your comfort zone. So much like I talked about with fitness, like physical fitness, instead of just always getting yourself, you know, the no pain, no gain, it's no rest, no best. Like, yes, you want to gently push at what you, at your assumptions allow yourself to make a practice of getting uncomfortable but in a way that you have been a participant in creating so as an example if you're terrified of public speaking it's you going to toastmasters and saying i'm going to like to deliberately put myself in these situations but in situations that also have some support and have some tools that i can lean on while i get better at dealing with this very challenging thing. And so the pieces that can help us to, instead of again, get out of your comfort zone, but rather to expand your comfort zone so that the radius of things that you can handle becomes massively larger. These are the tools. One is education. So no matter what terrible set of circumstances you may have had to go through, one aid can be just educating yourself on 
are you the only one who's gone through this? What are some examples of other people who have done this? You know, you're not alone. What are classes that might be able, you know, that people offer on this particular thing? What resources are available? So I use the example of being terrified of public speaking and going to Toastmasters, but it could be, you know, getting educated if you're, if you're diagnosed with cancer, getting educated about cancer. If it's that you just went through a mass shooting, it's getting educated about, okay, what's going on here? What feeds into this? And so on. So it's, it's getting educated about groups that may be available for yourself to help support you. It's getting educated about the patterns involved. It's education. That can be a major tool to use in facilitating post-traumatic growth. However, once again, I talked about how highly sensitive people are more likely to be affected by negative circumstances. The upside, by the way, is that they're much more likely to, be, to benefit from these tools that I'm about to go over. And I'm putting a caveat here. Well, you have to use all of them. <laughs> so I, it's, here's the, key, the thing that I'm really trying to drive home here. Highly sensitive people are more affected by negative circumstances. They are also more likely to rebound. They tend to be more resilient because they're more affected also by positive experiences. So a child who goes through, uh, sees some form of violence is going to be a highly sensitive child that sees violence, will be more affected by it. But give that same child a therapist. That child will benefit more from a therapist than will a non-sensitive child. So... Not only is it true that, yes, highly sensitive people who have to go through something difficult will be more affected by it, but if you educate them, they're also going to be more likely to sink deeply into all of that which you give them. They will benefit more from education. Here's the catch with the education bit, though. That's not enough. If we could simply educate ourselves out of circumstances, Google would have solved everything. And this is a part, like, I, I've... There's a number of highly sensitive people that I know who will tell me all about their problems with painstaking detail. I will tell you all of my woes. I will tell you all of my symptoms. I will tell you where my symptoms came from. I will tell you the intersection of all of the different ways in which my challenges have come to pass. I will tell you all of the meditators and the books that I have read. I will show you articles. I will show you videos. I have done my education, they will come to me and say. We, and this is not even an HSP thing, I think it's a human thing, we'd rather spend eight hours researching a problem than 20 minutes getting about the business of fixing it, dealing with it. We'd rather spend eight hours complaining about the homework assignment than two hours doing the homework assignment. We'd rather spend, you know, months complaining about our partner than two weeks getting out of that situation. It's just how we're wired. It's a tough thing. Not even just HSPs. This is a human thing. But it does require us to start doing stuff. Just wanted to make sure that was clear. Okay, so the next piece is that education is one. The next one is emotional regulation. Emotional regulation I've talked about quite a bit, but that's now in the realms of meditation. Uh, when you're educating yourself through people's work like Lisa Feldman Barrett, who says, hey, emotions are not actually real. We made them up. <laughs> like, they're concepts. It's really a sensation that we create stories about. Okay, so emotional regulation is about accepting all sensations as they are, rather than trying to block out whatever emotions may come up. It's about inviting them in. It's not about feeling good all the time. It's about feeling everything without judgment. 
The next one is disclosure. Having someone that you can talk through your challenges with. There's a ton of research on the power of connection and of just being able to complain to someone for a minute. Having a therapist, you know, especially someone who's trained in the art of being able to hold a space for whatever it is you're disclosing. Somewhere that's safe. The next is narrative development. It's being able to take the content that you're, of your story and reframe it such that you are the hero. And then finally, there's service. So if what you're looking for is a way to take your trauma and sort of like taking coal and turning it to a diamond, if you're trying to take your trauma and turn it into potential for growth, it's education, emotional regulation, disclosure, narrative development, and service. If what you're looking to do is maybe kind of preemptively work your, your, your internal realm out so that you can, you'll be less affected by trauma should it ever arise. So it's almost the, it's the, I'm scared of everything, even if I haven't endured objective quote unquote trauma. Okay, great that all of those rules still apply. What are the things that have been challenging for you so far? And how might you, how did you benefit from it? How did that help teach you something valuable? I have heard from some who said to me, yeah, I went through a really tough thing and I don't see any value in it. It was awful. That's now right back in the area of, again, are you sure? Are you sure it's not the case that you are stronger now than before? Are you sure you are not, in fact, the hero of your story? So I would gently challenge folks in that realm. For those, though, who are trying to work out this muscle in a discerning way and make it a practice, again, a practice of post of growth what I often say is okay so you want to create a workout from it Toastmasters was an excellent example it's a get comfortable being uncomfortable and then make sure that you don't burn yourself out so if it's being around other people that you don't like maybe go to one meetup and then and, and just allow yourself to sit back and listen observe there you did it you practiced. And what you start to do is gradually increase your capacity for being in the room with other people and chit-chatting. If it's that you're afraid to trust other people again, okay, so who is one person that you already trust? And maybe spend more time with them and use that as a blueprint for how to then go about the business of meeting maybe one other person that you could explore creating a connection with. So it's, when I say making it a practice, and I talk about the whole capacity zone, it's, you, you don't have to do this in a way where you, you, know, you push hard and fast. It can be something you do gently and over time. If you're willing to do this work, the kind of benefits that you can look forward to, and this is what those folks who have managed to cultivate post-traumatic growth, they talk about having a personal sense of strength. So much like I described in my experience in that relationship I had to get out of, I feel so much stronger. There's a sense that, well, I got through that. I can get through anything. Not because it's objectively that difficult, but because it was my special brand of hard. So in a similar vein, if you're terrified of heights and you decide to start doing indoor rock climbing, that's your personal brand of hard. And while it might not seem like a big deal to go to Toastmasters or to go to a indoor climb rock climbing ring 
it's a big deal because you're getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And that has a tendency to ripple out into other aspects of our lives. I used to think I couldn't handle traveling and, you know, being able to sleep in new places. It turns out once I cultivated a better meditation practice and I figured out better sleep hygiene practices and I figured out how to sort of accept when I can't sleep and just surrender to what is, suddenly I can travel anywhere. And if I don't sleep well, it's not the end of the world. That's a big deal for me. That's my personal brand of hard. So I have a sense of personal strength that I didn't have before. Not invincibility, but a sense, not the sense that, oh, everything will always work out, but the sense that I can handle whatever comes. Better relationships is the other. Now, trust me, I wasn't a better relationship with that gentleman, but at least he's now open to being available for people who are a better fit for him. I now have better relationships with the people that I surround myself with. I am so grateful for them. I have a whole new appreciation for the people in my life because those were the individuals who got me through that difficult time in my life. It was a friend that I called in a moment of desperation when I had run out of all of my ideas. And I just said, I, I've tried everything. I don't know how I'm going to get him this money. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this house. I don't know how I'm going to... There has to be an answer. And she just said, oh, honey, I know a guy. <laughs> and when it was, I know a guy, it was really, I know a mortgage broker who could probably find a way to get the money back out of the house. We'll figure it out. And we did. It was not just that she got me resources, though. It was that she listened. And she was willing to hold the space for me while I fell apart. And every single person, like, they rallied. They had each person call me on different days and just make sure I was okay. Like, what? It was the first time I realized that independence is not the most valuable thing in this world. That instead, co- not codependence, interdependence can be a powerful thing to have community. Another benefit can be a sense of new possibilities. Uh, This pandemic is a great example. There's all kinds of jobs that didn't exist before and exist now because we've had to be nimble and change feet, which is not to belittle or sort of just swift aside all those who are vulnerable and who are now only more vulnerable. But what I am saying is that those who took the time that this pandemic put us through and all of the experiences that they had and they said how do I get creative how do I take this difficult situation and use it to my benefit to everyone's benefit the sense of new possibilities the sense that well maybe we can create a business that's all online maybe we can learn to educate in a better way through online resources another benefit was appreciation for life a sense that wow I before the accident I mean I I was happy to be alive I guess but now I am so grateful. And finally, spiritual growth. A sense that I, I'm much more connected with larger forces in this world, in this universe. So again, I want to bring this back to HSPs. You know, we're more affected by trauma, but we're also more likely to benefit from therapy. We're more easily hurt, but we also heal more quickly. We have a lot of practice being uncomfortable. These are the things that we've got going for us. And this is part of why, I mean, think about how HSPs are made up. If you think about education, HSPs love to think deeply about stuff. We would totally benefit from education. 
emotional regulation. We, because we are more emotionally sensitive, meaning we are more sensitive to all sensations, we also benefit more from emotional regulation. Disclosure, we tend to connect with other people more easily because we're picking up on subtlety in other humans much more easily than the average. Narrative development, uh, changing our story helps us disproportionately. You know, it's amazing to watch when a person who's identified as being highly sensitive starts to see it as a potential strength, or at the very least, just neutral. And they go, oh, you mean I'm not crazy? This isn't a problem? This can just be a thing? <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing how quick the changes can occur. And finally, service. HSPs tend to be built for service. They have a very low threshold of capacity for do working in jobs that seem meaningless. They want to feel like their lives have purpose and meaning. And so given that that's true, in servicing others, HSPs have a tendency to benefit more greatly. So... I say all of this with the hope that you're walking away with maybe some tools, some tricks that you can explore and experiment with. If you have questions, though, so if you're going through something really traumatic and difficult and these tools just didn't really seem to scratch the surface for you, you can reach out to me, leah at thehealthysensitive.com, or you can go to my website, www.thehealthysensitive.com, and contact me through there. Uh, you can also join the community. There's a number of things you can do. But if I can't help you, there are resources available. So there's a therapist that I, one in particular I know that works specifically with HSPs. Um, so if I can't help, I can at the very least find someone who may be able to partner with you and help. And if you just have questions about the tools, because remember, I'm a health and wellness coach. So my arena is in helping people use tools to increase their capacity. Uh, that now brings me back to, as I've mentioned before, if you go to my website, thehealthysensitive.com, and you want to join the community, I have classes, I've got, you can download it through, an, you can have an app on your phone, um, you can connect with other highly sensitive people. So if you're looking for ways to gently expand on your capacity with the support of other HSPs, I would love, love, love to have you. And if you're not really sure, uh, just so you're aware, the, the community that I've got going, it does have a paywall. So it's $10 a month. However, if you cannot afford it, if these are trying times. So if, if that is too much to pay each month, please send me an email and just let me know. So that's Leah, L-E-A-H, at thehealthysensitive.com. And if you let me know that you're having, that you just can't afford it, I will send you a link so that you can have free access to the community. So I don't want money to be the reason that you can't connect with people who may be able to help and support you in pulling these together. And really, because this is, these are crazy times we just got through that we're still moving through right now. And it can be nice to have other people around who can look at you and say, yeah, man, I felt that too. That's, it's been rough. And it can be nice to, when using tools like education or regulation, disclosure, new story development or service, to have some support, whether it's through a facilitator, which is what I do, or really just having other people to do it with. So uh, if you have any questions, reach out to me. Otherwise, I am so delighted that you shared your time with me today. 
damn near an hour. So thanks for hanging in there with me, folks. <laughs> I will look forward to checking in with you again next week. 